0: right, hi. How are we? We good? Good. Hey, so uh, I gotta say this just right off the bat. Um, So last weekend I attended church at the 4 o'clock Saturday night service in Lafayette, Um, and Jim did not say this at the 4 o'clock, but apparently... Uh, one of the other services, he told you to send me an email uh, if you appreciated like, my teaching the last few weeks. And I think he didn't say it at the four o'clock because he knew I was there and knows I'd get like, embarrassed by that kind of stuff. He, like, he knows I would have come and talked to him be like, don't say that. Like, if you like me, don't do that. Um, but here's what I want to say. Like, you know, like One of the things I wrestle through personally is I have trouble accepting compliments, accepting encouragement, and stuff like that. Um, but my inbox exploded, and so, you know, this week I, I tried to just sit back and soak it in and be encouraged by my church, and I was. And so I'm just saying thank you for doing that, if that was you. <clears throat> you did clap for yourself just then, and that's rude. <laughs> but I'm going to overlook it. <laughs> All right, so this <laughs> made me crack myself up. Uh, so let's get started. So we're in the middle of this true color series, um, and throughout the series for the last few weeks, been we've been addressing this question. It goes like like this: What does faith look like when life falls apart? right, that's what we've been talking about. Throughout this series, we've been in Psalm 139. We've used that as like a launching pad into addressing this question because Psalm 139 is a prayer to God written by King David. And it's written by David in the midst of some sort of conflict, in, in the midst of some sort of battle that he's losing, right? And so Psalm 139, it teaches us what faith looks like when life falls apart, at least what it looked like for David. And David is the only man in the Bible described as a man after God's own heart, so he's a good person to learn from. And so here's what faith looked like for David when life was hard. When life falls apart, David intentionally makes decisions based on what he knows to be true about God, even though it doesn't feel true right now in the moment. And that's what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. But my question today is this. It's really a personal question of my own. Like this is something I'm wrestling through and trying to learn, but maybe it would be good to just wrestle through it and learn it together. My question is this, is it possible in times where God feels distant or uncaring, is it possible to take what we know to be true about God and make it feel true again? Is there something we can be doing to move things from here back to here? And I think the answer is yes. And I think it's actually exactly what we see David doing in Psalm 139. This thing that he's doing, this like battle-ready faith that David has, I would sum it up with the word surrender. David is surrendering. And, and surrender is David's strategy for victory, And I know that's contradictory, right? And I know the concept of surrender leaves a sour taste in our mouth because because we hate the idea of surrender. Every time we use the word, it's negative. I mean, the dictionary definition of surrender is to stop resisting an enemy and submit to their authority. Who wants that? We don't wanna do that. To put that in my own words, surrender is this, to give up and give in. That is surrender. And we picture war movies in our head. At least I do. I I like war movies. I watch a lot of those. I picture the white flag waving from the trench, right? And men dropping their weapons and walking out with their hands up. We picture men who gave up the good fight and gave in to the enemy. We hate the concept of surrender. We just hate it. And we hate it because we know that surrender isn't just defeat. It's the most humiliating form of defeat. And we know this, personally, on a deep level. Because all of us at some point, or we are now, we have surrendered to some sort of an enemy. And we don't like it, we're not happy about it. We even talk about it in surrender kind of language. right? We say, I gave up, I gave up on sobriety. And I gave into the bottle, or I gave up on my marriage and I gave into filing papers or into pornography. We surrendered. And then when we surrender, the victim mentality of a surrendered person kicks in and it wraps itself around you, right? It owns you, it defines you. That's when you start saying things like, I tried. You know, I tried my hardest to fight the good fight and it didn't work. And it didn't work because I'm just an addict. I'm just a cheat, a liar, a loser. I'm just a prisoner of war and that's all I'll ever be. And when we start saying things like that, we've waved the white flag, we gave up. We we handed over our weapons and handed over our dignity and we hung our heads because we lost. That's what we typically think of when we think of the concept of surrender. And so when I say that David's strategy for victory, his battle-ready faith is surrender, (laughs) what am I talking about? And here's what I'm talking about. David understood something. All right, he understood something that we often either don't understand or we do, but we're trying to pretend like it's not true. And what David understood is that avoiding surrender is impossible. It's not possible. And before you're like, wow, you got depressing real fast today, Ben, <laughs> let me explain what I'm talking about. So, David understood as broken human beings, we all have this innate drive to serve somebody. We do we we will eventually give up and give in to something or someone we can't rewire that part of our human nature and so whether we surrender to an enemy's authority or our own authority or God's authority we will surrender as human beings we can't not surrender in the words of the prophet the ray ban wearing harmonica playing stoner prophet known as bob dylan and his son got to serve somebody, he says the same thing. He says, you're going to have to serve somebody. Maybe the devil, maybe the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And it's just true. If Bobby D said it, it has to be true. <laughs> Last I was, Okay, this is side note. So we got a guy on staff named Bob, Bobby Dunlap. And I said, Bobby D, you know, if he says it must be true. And all the tech people were like, I got to listen to Bobby Dunlap now? I'm like, no. Anyway. Uh, it's true, we will surrender to, to something or, or someone, we will, we hate hearing that truth, but it's true. But here's what David does with that truth, all right? So he, he doesn't fight it, he doesn't avoid it, instead he just accepts it as reality. And in Psalm 139, it's basically David going, he's saying this, he's going, all right, so if I I will eventually surrender to something or someone, then I choose, I'm not gonna be a victim, I choose to, Instead of surrender to my enemy, I choose to surrender to my God, who promised that he knows everything, he is everywhere, and he cares about me. And that's what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. I don't have time to recap all of it right now, but essentially, over the last three weeks, we've been watching David surrender to the right person in Psalm 139. He gives up and he gives in. He gives up on on hiding from God in shame, and he gives in to God's overwhelming grace, and he gives up on despair and he gives into God's overwhelming hope because of so of all the different kings on all the different battlefields that we could serve God is described as the king of kings and the Bible says that he goes before his people and he fights for his people David knew that and so David surrendered to him that's how he ends the psalm he swears allegiance to his God. He says this, search me, O God, and, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me into the way, into the way everlasting. That's David surrendering. That's David, you know, basically saying, hey, all right, I'm with you. Will you please keep being with me? And David was ahead of his time because he understood a concept that still to this day you pretty much only find in Christianity because it's so backwards, but it's true. He understood that in the kingdom of God, the road to victory is paved with surrender. And that's only true for us. All right, so now I'll be honest with you. We've only been here for a few minutes. This little bit that I just taught on, I originally wrote an entire 40-minute talk on that. And I went into more detail on, on the different aspects of surrender and the way we see David surrendering in Psalm 139. And <laughs> there like, might be a chance that I actually wrote two different 40-minute talks on Psalm 139. But I was struggling with even wanting to deliver those talks. And that's mainly because I had this completely like other thing that I couldn't stop thinking about all week long. And so finally on Thursday night, I'm a slow learner, I was like, you know what, screw it, I'm just going to write a talk on a thing I can't stop thinking about right now. And so I did, and I trashed the other two talks, and I wrote a third one, and so here we are (laughs) on the third page of my third talk where it's time to explain that we're switching gears now. (laughs) Here's what I couldn't stop thinking about. It's a question I have which is this, what brings a person to surrender? Why would a person ever surrender? And and I think the answer is this, you would surrender when you feel overwhelmed by someone else's power. And that just makes sense. So if you think about a literal battlefield, the only reason you would ever contemplate surrender is if you felt overwhelmed by someone else's display of overwhelming power. If you felt so overwhelmed by it that you eventually became convinced that it would be better to join that source of power than to fight against it. That's the whole if you can't beat 'em, join 'em mentality. And in Psalm 139, I see the same thing, but in a good and positive sense. I see the same thing driving David to this point of surrendering to his God. Because remember, from the last few weeks, he spends the majority of this Psalm simply talking about and reflecting on the nature and character of God. That he's everywhere and he knows everything and he cares about us. And I think what David is doing when he's reflecting on the nature of God, I think he's trying to take what he knows to be true about God and he's trying to make it feel true again. He's reflecting on the character of God and he's trying to stand in awe of God's power. He's trying to allow himself to become overwhelmed by that power to the point where he goes, all right, I'm in. I think he's trying to take what he knows to be true about God and make it feel true again. And so that got me thinking all week. I was like, what would it look like to try that together? As a church, as a family of people who, I mean, most of us in the room, we want to. We want to surrender. We we want to give up our despair, fear, shame, and anger. We want to give in to God's power. We just don't know how. And so I was thinking all week, like what would it look like as a church to try what David tried? To do this thing where we do nothing other than reflect on God's power and his goodness in a very intentional and focused way. And we do that because it's like we're we're looking at God going, we're trying to be overwhelmed by you right now. We're trying to feel again the things we know to be true about you. And so I wanna try it today. And and specifically, I want to reflect on the overwhelming display of God's power on the cross. Because next weekend is Easter, right? And that's kind of a big deal around here. That's a big deal for Christians all around the world. It's the day that we get together and and celebrate. It's the foundation of our faith and all of our hope. It's the day that we get together and celebrate a moment in history where Jesus was literally resurrected from the literal dead. And if you believe that to be true, like I do, then it's undeniable that Easter is the most perfect display of the truth that David understood, that in the kingdom of God, the road to victory is paved with surrender. And not just any surrender, but surrender to the overwhelming power of God, Surrender leads to victory. Easter is proof of that. Easter is our, is our hope of victory. But without Jesus first hanging on a cross, there is no Easter to celebrate. And without Jesus first dying, there is no coming back to life. Without Jesus' surrender, there is no victory. And so today we should reflect on that and just think about it. So here's what that's going to look like. For the rest of this talk, all right, this is one of the few times I'd recommend it. For the rest of the talk, I'd recommend that you actually don't take notes. All right, don't write in your journal, don't write on your phone, and don't take pictures of the screens and the verses. All right, you can always watch it online if you forgot something, you want to remember something. And don't worry, don't worry about doing all the mental gymnastics that we're used to in here, where you like work yourself into a headache trying to figure out how you're going to apply this to your life. Don't worry about that today. Because for the rest of the today, we're not like necessarily out to learn anything new. Don't do that. Instead, let's take a cue from David and let's do nothing other than reflect on God's power displayed on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago and let's see if we can still get overwhelmed by it. And so we're gonna try that. For the rest of our time together, just sit back and just listen, all right? And then periodically, we're going to ask ourselves, do we feel it? Do we feel it yet? And when I I ask that, what I mean is for those of us who have been a Christian for your whole life, you've heard this story more times than you can count. What I'm asking is, do you feel it? Do you feel it again? Not just know it. And then if you're in the room and you're, you know, you're still giving it a shot and you're not sure what you believe about any of this, first of all, I'm glad you're here. You can always come here and not believe in this. Come figure it out here. But if that's you, when I ask, do you feel it yet? If you do, then maybe that's because it's true. So let's reflect on what happened on the cross. So I grew up in church and I grew up in Dallas. My dad always says that, Dallas isn't technically the Bible belt, but it's, like, maybe the belt buckle or something. And that's just, like, you know, he always thinks he's hilarious, and, but it's just a dad joke, so there's a dad joke for you. Um, and I grew up in Dallas in church, and because of that, I grew up knowing that Jesus died for me. I heard that constantly. You know, I bet I knew that Jesus died for me before I knew how to spell my name, and it's three letters long, you know, so that's early. <laughs> But at the same time, at the same time, I did not know why Jesus died for me. Like I didn't understand the bigger picture. And I'm not sure if maybe like no one ever effectively communicated it to me or maybe I wasn't listening or too thick or confused to get it. But regardless, I had no idea why Jesus had to die for me was the point. And in fact, as I got older, I started to learn that people die for other people all of the time, which made me think, well, if that's the case, well, why are we worshiping Jesus for this? And then it didn't help either that most of the time when I heard pastors teaching on, on the cross, they'd talk about it like it was just the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of existence. Jesus on the cross talks were always the most depressing sermons I had ever heard. And I remember sitting there in church going like, oh, we have got to talk about the cross. I've got to feel sad all day again. And if they weren't talking about it in, in a depressing way, then they were leveraging Jesus, the, what he did on the cross for us, they were leverage, leveraging it as like some cosmic guilt trip sermon, right? Like, like the cross was God's divine version of looking at us and going, look at what you made me do. Trying to guilt me into behaving. In fact, this is a true story. I even had one preacher tell me that every time I did something wrong, there was a cross in heaven that Jesus had to be nailed to again. Like he's being crucified constantly in heaven. To let you a little more in, it was actually a group of boys he was talking to. And he said that anytime we have an impure, that was his favorite word, anytime we have an impure sexual thought, he would be nailed to the cross. I was in middle school at the time. (laughs) The men in the room know what our heads were like. All of us were like, oh no, (laughs) it's not at all true, but it messed me up. And it really, you know, I'm able to joke about it now, but it really did mess me up. I left and walked away from God and Jesus and his church and his people for nearly a decade because of lies like that one. I didn't want anything to do with that. Well, that's too bad because of the way the Bible talks about the cross and the way that the best, wisest teachers would ever talk about the cross is they would tell you that the cross is the best thing that God has ever done for us. It is the greatest gift he's ever given us. It's the climax of his eternity-long plan to rescue us. And it's the most powerful act of love and forgiveness he has ever displayed towards his people, towards us. And if that's true, then when we talk about the cross, shouldn't we be able to feel something other than sadness and guilt and shame? Shouldn't we instead be able to feel overwhelmed with thankfulness, and joy at the very thought of God's greatest gift to mankind. And I unabashedly, firmly believe, yes, absolutely we should feel that. Because it's amazing. It's incredible. I mean, there has not been a fictional story ever written to rival the power and wonder of this historical story, this moment on a cross, this pinnacle moment of God's eternal, relentless pursuit of us. It's incredible. We should feel that it's incredible. But most of the time we don't. And I wonder if that's because like me growing up, we don't quite understand the bigger picture. And so let's talk about the bigger picture. And to do that, I gotta rewind a little bit. Because if we start at, at the cross, that's like trying to understand a movie while starting at the last 10 minutes. You're not gonna understand what's going on. You got not until you, you know, rewind and go back to the beginning. So let's go back to the beginning. And in short, to try to make a really long story short, in the beginning, God created everything, including humankind. And when God did create humans, Humans and God were living in perfect harmony and relationship with each other. God walked with them. He talked with them. Everything and everyone existing in perfection. Until humans decided they wanted something other than God. And what they wanted, other than God, was an answer to a question, which is what is evil? They knew what good was, they were living in it perfectly. But they got curious, like we do. They got curious about this thing over here. They wanted to know what the bad tasted like. And we don't need to spend any more time in the story, because Jim just t- told this story in detail last, last weekend. All we need to understand today is the eternal result of that decision to pursue something other than God, and the eternal result is sin, right, sin has entered into and become inseparable from our existence. That's the beginning. Now let's move forward a little bit because we got to understand sin more effectively. Like we got to understand it clearly if we want to clearly understand the cross. And typically we don't understand sin in the right way. Typically we think sin is like when you make a bad decision or you make a poor choice, Right? And we say things like, I sinned today. And what you mean is you did something ro- that you think is wrong, right? You, you cheated, you lied, you stole, whatever. I sinned today. We have this idea that like, sometimes you do something and, you're, and you sinned, and then other times you did it and so you're not sinning. And that's not what it is. So sin is a term, we stole it, we copped it. It's an archery term. And we've talked about this in here before. And in archery, sin is any time that you miss the bullseye, You fall short of the mark. And we stole that term because we thought it would help articulate and explain, like, the human problem. And so sin, in the moral sense, like we're talking about today, is anytime you miss the bullseye. And in this case, the bullseye is the state in which we were created to live, which is perfection. So sin... Is any time that you are not living in a state of godlike perfection, and you don't need me to tell you that you've never done that and you never will. It's impossible. So sin is not an action, all right? Even though it plays itself out through our actions most of the time, but it's not an action. Sin is our state of being, it is who we are. This is our human problem. We're always sinful because we're always missing the mark. We're always imperfect. Even when you're helping old ladies across the street and like donating to goodwill, you're doing it sinfully because we're imperfect. And the effect of now being imperfect, sinful people is that we can no longer stand in the presence of God. We can't because he's perfect and we're imperfect and the two of those things cannot combine. It's impossible, right? That's like putting oxygen into a vacuum and saying it's still a vacuum. No, it's not. They cancel each other out. Imperfect and perfect cannot coexist and this is very bad for us because this means that unless God does something to intervene on our behalf, we're hopeless. The biblical word for it is we are forsaken. That means abandoned and deserted to just be on our own in our own imperfection. When left to our own power, it is literally impossible for us to enter into the presence of God, and he is the perfect source of everything you've ever wanted in your life joy, love, happiness, forgiveness, mercy, all of it, we can't get near it because we can't get near him. We're forsaken. And I know you're going like, well, I thought we could feel joyful about the cross. We can, very much so. But we can't grasp the power of that joy until we grasp the power of our problem. We're forsaken. Hang on to that word forsaken because I'm gonna come back to it. One more thing and then we can get to the cross. And keep tracking with me here because if we understand this, I think the power will sink in. So our forsakenness, our fallen sinful state of being, it created a great dilemma for God. And the dilemma is this. How can God solve our problem of forsakenness while also remaining righteous? and righteous means true to himself. How can he do this? Here's why it's a dilemma. So over here, if God were to say, you know what, it's okay, it's fine. You chose something other than me, you rebelled against me, but that's okay. And you have to live forever in imperfection. but I don't care, that's fine. All right, you can come live with me anyway. If you were to say that, that would be loving but he would have to surrender his perfect justice, even to just say it out loud, and he can't do that. He's gotta stay true to himself. And then over here, if you he were to say, hey, listen, I am life, and you chose something else, and so you get to have it, death. That would be very just, but he would have to surrender his perfect love for his creations even to just say it out loud. He can't do that, he has to stay true to himself. So how can he solve this great dilemma? And that is what should overwhelm us about the power of the cross. Because on the cross, God solved our dilemma and he solved it in only a way that God could, in a way that is so good and perfect and true and mysterious and mind-blowing. Because God knew that the only solution for paying off our infinite debt would be to cut an infinite check. And so rather than surrender his righteous justice and surrender his righteous love, God instead chose to surrender his righteous self And so, Jesus Christ, who, who he's at the time living in heaven in perfect equality with God, he is God, but also distinct from God. It's that mysterious Trinity thing that we'll never wrap our heads around. If you get it, explain it to me. Jesus Christ chooses to willingly surrender the perfect equality and relationship he has with his Father so that he can be born into humanity, so that he can pay off our infinite debt with his infinite sacrifice. Are we starting to feel it yet? See, Jesus, who, who is God in the flesh, he entered into humanity for the cross, It was his singular focus. His eyes were set on it since eternity because he knew that there was going to be this moment on the cross where this crazy transaction was going to occur. There was going to be this moment on the cross where Jesus, who knew no sin, that's what the Bible says, which means not only did he not do the action of sin like we think of it, he wouldn't know how to. He's known no sin. There's going to be this moment on the cross where Jesus, who knew no sin, would willingly choose to literally, literally become our sin. There is going to be this moment on the cross where Jesus willingly placed all of our imperfection and all the stuff that comes with it all of our deserved guilt and shame and condemnation and punishment, and he transferred all of our debt to his account. And he placed all of that on his back, and then he nailed it to a cross so that he could execute it. And in that moment, God solved our dilemma In an overwhelmingly powerful way, which is this let this sink in. God stayed true to his righteous love for us by giving us a way to not have to pay for our debt giving us a way to live in his presence again. He stayed true to his righteous love and he also stayed true to his righteous justice. And the way that he did that was he placed our infinite debt on his infinite shoulders in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. And then he paid the just and fair price which is forsakenness and death. Do we feel it yet? When I first read that, it was in a book. It's by John Stott called The Cross of Christ. It's worth it. When I first read that, I wept. I had never understood what was going on. And I started to read the story of the cross like in a whole new light, with a whole new lens. And when you do, the sum of Jesus' final words while he's hanging on the cross—they're like—they get so much more intense. For example, l- look at this. This is while he's on the cross. Matthew writes this <clears throat> about the ninth hour. He Jesus cried out in a loud voice, and he said, "Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani," which means, "My God, my God." Why have you forsaken me? That's the moment, the transaction, the moment where Jesus willingly chose to take on our forsakenness. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not playing some role right now. He says that because in that moment, God has forsaken him. God has turned his back on him because, God, or because Jesus has become our sin. And the two can't combine. Not right now. In that verse, it's the first time since eternity that Jesus has had to suffer and experience exclusion from the presence of his Father to experience forsakenness do we feel it yet? And then beginning with that moment when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Beginning at that moment and for the next three days, everything is out of Jesus' hands. Because dead men can't resurrect themselves. That's called reviving But if he's dead, he has to be resurrected. And so for the next three days, it's all out of Jesus's hands and completely in the hands of his father. Jesus's hope of resurrection, our hope of resurrection, the entire balance of the future of existence depends on the next three days. And it depends on God staying true to his promises. But even when forsaken, Jesus never once doubts his father. And in fact, with his dying breath, he says this. Jesus called out in a loud voice and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last And here's something crazy about Jesus's final words. So first of all, it's his level of trust, right? It's just insane because we as Christians, I mean, I do this all of the time. We do this thing where we quit trusting in God because we imagine that he's turned his backs on us when in reality, because of what we're talking about right now, in reality, he has not turned his back on you and he never will. But then Jesus, on the other hand, never quit trusting his father, even though in reality, in that moment, God had turned his back on him. He calls him father. And with his dying breath, Jesus essentially goes, all right, dad, I know you can't even hear me right now. But the next three days are in your hands and I trust you with them. It's a whole other level of trust, it's crazy. But then here's something even crazier to me. Like, so Jim and I were talking about this in his office earlier in the week, and we had this moment where we just like sat there in silence, overwhelmed, I hope it overwhelms you as much as it does us. It's this crazy thing about his last words, the stuff he says after, from the point he's forsaken. It's not Jesus's words. Those last two verses I read, I mean, he says them on the cross, but he's quoting someone. And he's quoting David's Psalms. And so when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22.1, written by David. You can look it up later. And when Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit, that's Psalm 31.5, written by David. And the reason that is overwhelming to me is because it means A thousand years before the cross, God inspired David to write the words that he knew his son Jesus would need to lean on while hanging on a cross. God knew that his son would willingly choose to become forsaken on our behalf. And so God knew there was going to be this period of time where he could not, could not be there for his son. And so instead... A 1,000 years earlier, he, instead he chose to be there for his son by inspiring David to write those words. It's overwhelming. And it spanned eternity. Do we feel it yet? And so Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And leaning on the Psalms of David, Jesus slipped into death. And as he slowly exhaled, as his final breath whispered past his lips and dissipated into nothingness, so did your sin. And then next weekend, we're gonna celebrate. We're gonna celebrate the fact that three days later, God did not disappoint and he resurrected his son. But we can save that part of our history for next week. This week, can we just celebrate what happened on the cross? Because it means our ultimate problem, our forsakenness, has been completely, totally, infinitely, forever paid for. We should ask ourselves, do we feel it yet? Are we overwhelmed with the power and goodness of what God did for us on the cross? And are we willing to surrender to it, to just give up and give in to what Jesus accomplished for us? Because if you want, so if you want Jesus's infinite payment to apply to your infinite debt, all you have to do is believe that God could be that good. That's it all you have to do is believe it was enough to cover you. Yes, even you. Yes, including the thing that you're thinking about right now, the thing you're so ashamed of. All you have to do is believe it's paid for. And when you do, you're free. You are free to give up and give in. You can give up the, the thing where we shame ourselves into oblivion as if we need to punish our ourselves for the things we've done. No, it, it, the things you've done have been punished. One-time event, it's done, give it up. You're free to give up that thing where you endlessly try to earn your own salvation, right? Where you try to hurry up and fix yourself and be a better person and prove that you're worthy. Give it up, it's exhausting, You can't earn it. It was earned for you in a one-time event. Give it up. Give up and give in to what Jesus has earned for you because what he earned for you is he took all of your guilt and shame and punishment, all of the stuff that you've been punishing yourself for, and he put it to infinite, eternal death in his infinite and eternal self. And then when he came back to life three days later to hand us infinite eternal life, when he walked out of that tomb three days later, your guilt and sin did not walk out with him. They stayed dead. All you have to do is believe it. And when you do, when you believe it, when you say, I surrender to that power, I'm with you, the minute you say that, Jesus intercedes for you, standing at the right hand of God, and he says, do you see Ben Foote? He's with me. And God sees no debt. He sees an empty account that he is ready to fill. So take him at his word. Take him at his word. Believe he wasn't lying to you. When God says stuff like this, look at this. This is the most famous verse in the world, but take it at its word. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Take him at his word when he said he did that for you because he loves you, not because he's angry. Look at this. For, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Take him at his word. When he says he, he did that not to condemn you and punish you, but to save you, to rescue you. Look at this, this is Hebrews. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. Endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Take God at his word when he says, Jesus did that for you out of joy, not begrudging obedience and obligation. And then the most overwhelmingly powerful truth of them all is this. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And again, that's a psalm written by David. A thousand years before the cross, God is explaining to his people why he paid our debt and why Jesus endured the cross with joy. And it's because he was delighted to do so. And he delights in rescuing you. Over the course of the next few weeks, or sorry, the next few days, as we prepare ourselves to come here and celebrate Easter. First, can we just celebrate that? It's the best news that has ever been told. It's the good news. Can we allow ourselves to be overwhelmed by that power? Can we surrender to it? And can we just sit there for a week? And delight in the fact that God delighted in going to the cross for you. And he continues to delight in rescuing you. Can we feel that yet? Pray with me. God, the hardest things to believe in and the hardest things to surrender to are the things that seem too good to be true. And this is the too good to be true. God, since eternity, this has always been in your mind. This has always been in beating in your heart, the cross. It's always been something that you've delighted in. It doesn't make sense to us but it makes sense to you. God, what I'm asking for, for the rest of today, for the next few days, for ever, is to do something for us. Because like, there's no, I can't do it. There's no talk that could ever be powerful enough to do this. And we can't just like, think hard enough to put ourselves here. God, what I'm asking for is for you to overwhelm us. Today, for anyone in the room right now, who's sitting here going, please overwhelm me with that power and that goodness? Will you do that? We want to delight in that. God, I'm praying for the people in here who've been Christians for our whole lives. We've heard the story more times than we can count. God, give us fresh eyes to see fresh things and fresh ears to hear fresh things and overwhelm us with your power. And then God, for the people who like, they've heard this for the first time, thank you and overwhelm them And then most of all, we want to say thank you. Thank you for doing that 2,000 years ago. Thank you for being willing and delighting in taking my forsakenness away from me on the cross. I thank you for that, and I worship you for that, and I love you, and I pray this in your son's name, Jesus Christ, amen.